0: Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn, please, to the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, the 30th chapter, Jeremiah chapter 30. If you're just joining us this morning, we're in a series of messages under the theme, Piecing Together the Prophetic Puzzle. It's been my prayer that you would not find this to be a pathetic puzzle, but... Truly a prophetic puzzle. So much of the Bible is prophecy. Some estimate that one-third of the Bible is prophetic. As we look toward the Christmas season, we recognize so many of those prophecies so specifically and wonderfully, fulfilled at once in the birth of Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 3, there had been told the wonderful news, the prolegomena, the first Protoevangelium, Proto-Evangelium, rather, the first news of the gospel in Genesis 3 and verse 15, that a woman would bring forth a seed, and that seed would destroy the head of the serpent. By the time we get to Genesis 49, we're told that that one of promise would come from the tribe of Judah. As we come to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7 says that that one of promise will be born of a virgin. Isaiah 53 says he'll be born in poverty and not recognized for any personal splendor. And then in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, the Bible tells us that the one that we celebrate this Christmas season, Jesus Christ, our Savior, would be born in a village, Bethlehem. And so, one by one, each of these Old Testament prophecies, specifically, undeniably, wonderfully fulfilled, Helping us to realize that when you read biblical prophecy, biblical prophecy is to be read literally, understanding and expecting a literal, spectacular, wonderful, God sent fulfillment of every prophecy in God's Word. We're opening our Bibles this morning to the book of Jeremiah, the 30th chapter. Sobering theme this morning. We're going to be focusing on what it means to place the tribulation in the prophetic puzzle. Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, and the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And These are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask you now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all their faces are turned into paleness. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It's even the time of Jacob's trouble, for he shall be saved out of it. Shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and will burst thy bonds. And strangers shall no more serve themselves on him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord. Neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return. And shall be in rest and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee and measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Placing the tribulation in the prophetic puzzle. How many of you have read one or more of the books in the Left Behind series. Let's see your hands. Many people. There are 16 books in the Left Behind series. They have sold some 80 million copies. Perhaps you haven't read one of the books, but perhaps you've seen one of the five movies that have been spawned out of those books in their publication. When we raise hands to say so many have watched those films or read those books and realized that 80 million copies have sold, we come to understand that there's a tremendous amount of interest in what the Bible has to say about the future. We're surrounded by many, many people who want to know what the Bible has to say prophetically regarding the end times. More than that, we may indeed be surrounded by some people who are asking questions about the future who one day may find themselves seeking to survive the awfulness of the tribulation. Since Adam and Eve fell, Job tells us men have been born to troubles even as certainly as the sparks fly upward. But there's coming a day of trouble unlike any day that the world has ever experienced before. It's a terrible and dreadful day. In fact, the Bible in multiple places with multiple prophecies tells us about that dreadful day. Here in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7, that day is called the time of Jacob's trouble. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, Daniel refers to that particular time saying, it will be a time of trouble such as has never been. Joel chapter 2 says in verse 1, it will be a day of darkness. And gloominess. It will be a day such as never been the like, an incomparable time of tribulation. Zephaniah says in chapter 1 and verse 14, as a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of distress. Malachi 4 and verse 1 speaks of this time as the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21. Jesus said, Then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Revelation 6 and verse 17 says, it will be a day of great wrath. Revelation 7 and verse 14 calls this time the great tribulation. These scriptures and many, many others cause us to come to one inescapable conclusion, that God one day is going to pour out His awful wrath on this world. It will be a time of trouble such as never been before. None of us have ever experienced anything like this. And So today, we're going to seek to place this particular time into the prophetic puzzle. We're going to be asking and answering some questions this morning. We need to be asking the question, How long will the tribulation last? We need to ask the question, what will it be like? We need to ask why, why? Why will this tribulation occur, and who? Who will participate in it? Before we answer those questions, we need to go back to our prophetic timeline. By now, you're becoming familiar with the timeline that I've suggested may help us with our piecing together the prophetic puzzle. And as we piece it together, we recognize that today we live in the church age. What a wonderful age. Not only called the church age, it's also called the age of grace. And it is an age of grace. It's a time when the invitation of grace is being offered, that all who would come to Jesus Christ can be saved. The church age began, according to Acts chapter 2, when the blessed spirit of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, descended and baptized together the Jew and the Gentile, into one mystical, spiritual body that we know as the church. But the church age is going to end. It's going to end with the next event that's on God's prophetic calendar. That event is imminent. In other words, it's coming. It's certainly coming, but we don't know when. We don't know the day or the hour. That event is called the rapture. Behold, I show you a mystery, 1 Corinthians 15 says in verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. While that is often printed over nursery doors... That is meant to talk to us about the wonder of the rapture. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. The twinkling of an eye at the last trump, the dead shall be raised and we shall all be changed. After the rapture, there's coming a time of terrible apostasy, a time that we consider this morning, a time when the Antichrist rules, a time called the tribulation. I believe the rapture is before the tribulation, that the church will be gone when the church is gone, mysteriously caught away, that terrible time of tribulation begins, and that could happen at any moment. At any moment, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ could be vacated from this place, and those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior would be left behind. We asked the question this morning how long will this time of tribulation that the Bible speaks of endure? We discuss then the duration of the tribulation. The tribulation is a very distinct period of time in God's Word. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 introduces it as a period of time, saying, it's a time of trouble such as never was. Herman Hoyt, in his book on biblical prophecy, says, the measurement of this period is more precisely described than almost any period in the Bible, and with those words, I would agree. The time of the tribulation is given to us in years. It's given to us in months. It's even given to us in specific days. Take your Bible with me and turn, please, to the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 9. If you were in Jeremiah, you come two books over, Jeremiah to Ezekiel, then to Daniel and Daniel chapter 9. Daniel has long been called the key to biblical prophecy. If we would open the door and understand our discussion of the tribulation, we have to start by picking up the key that's found in Daniel chapter 9. As we arrive in Daniel chapter 9, verse 21 tells us that God sends Gabriel, the messenger angel, to reveal a very specific chronological prophecy to Daniel. That prophecy is found in Daniel chapter 9, where in verse 24 we read, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and thy holy city. Now, Daniel was a Jewish man. He was living in the captivity of Babylon. Three times a day, he opened a window and he prayed in the direction of his holy city. That holy city was Jerusalem, his people, the Jewish people. It's important to notice this because as we read Daniel chapter 9 and we read the Revelation with regard to the tribulation found in the book of the Revelation, you'll never find the church in any of these discussions. That's very important for us to note. God is speaking to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24 about the Jewish people and about Jerusalem when he says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now, the word weeks needs to be circled and explained. The word weeks is an English translation of the Hebrew word Shabuah. You can hear the word Shabbat or Sabbath in the Hebrew word Shabuah. It's better translated sevens. In fact, in the Schofield Reference Bible, there's a, there's a note by Daniel chapter 9. It suggests that these weeks are more accurately understood as sevens of years. Seventy weeks, says Schofield, or seven years. Of seven years, rather, each. So, if you help me out here a little bit, I was never very good at math. Seventy sevens. Seventy times seven would be how many? 490. That becomes important. In fact, there's a little bit of information that you'll want to hold on to as you reflect on. Seventy sevens have been revealed now for thy people, for thy holy city. God has determined six purposes that he has in the latter times for Israel and for Jerusalem, for the children of Israel, the Jewish people, and for Jerusalem. And so we find those six purposes in verse 24. He says, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation, what a wonderful word for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. So these promises and expectations of this prophetic period of time Begin with the punishment for sin and transgression, but then they include reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. And look at how it ends in verse 24, to seal up the vision of the prophecy and anoint the most holy. Anointing the most holy. This prophetic period of time, these 77s, have as their purpose the ultimate anointing of the Messiah, the most holy. In verses 25 and 26, Gabriel sets the seventy-sevens into a continuum when he says, Know therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Three score, score is twenty, threescore is sixty, threescore and two is sixty-two. But then he also noted seven. So he's just given to us a revelation of 69 of those weeks. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince, there'll be seven weeks plus 60 plus two. That's 69. The street will be built again on the wall even in troublous times. Now this was good news for Daniel. After all, he was living in the Jewish captivity of Babylon. Three times a day, as I mentioned, he would raise that window and pray For the peace of Jerusalem, more than that, he would pray that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Good news, Nehemiah chapter 2. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, gave instruction to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. When that instruction to go back and rebuild Jerusalem was given, it began the fulfillment of verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, sixty-nine weeks. Artaxerxes gave that commandment to go back and rebuild Jerusalem in four forty-five B.C. When you track four forty-five B.C. until the entry of Jesus Christ in triumph into the city of Jerusalem, you know what you'll find. Exactly 483 years. Now, that can be confusing because the Jewish people use a 360-day calendar, a lunar calendar. But exactly 483 years after Artaxerxes says, go ahead, go back and rebuild until the coming of Messiah the Prince. That passage has been literally fulfilled. Jesus the Messiah came into Jerusalem at the appointed hour. In fact, he announced at that hour when people were saying, why don't you silence your disciples? All through his earthly ministry, you'll recall, he was saying, my day has not yet come. My day has not yet come. But then when he came in triumph, riding upon that burrow and the, col- the colt, the foal of an ass, and while those coats were being placed in front of him, the palm branches were being waved and they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, the religious leaders said, silent these people. Jesus said, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. If you only knew this, and he says, the day. 483 years to the day that prophecy is being fulfilled. But look at verse 26. In verse 26, it says, And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Jesus did not die for his own sins. The Messiah was cut off. 1 John chapter 2 says in verse 2, he's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And we continue reading in verse 26, and the people of the prince that shall come, not the Messiah, but another prince, a false prince, a prince that will come after him. Well, the people of that prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. They won't build it. And the end thereof will be with a flood, and unto the end the war of desolations are determined. Now notice in verse 27, it says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Who's the he? Well, the he is the prince that shall come. The prince that shall come will confirm a covenant with many for one week. We can picture it this way. This passage is talking about a command to go back and rebuild from the going forth of the command to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and to Messiah the Prince, 69 weeks. Then Messiah is cut off, but there's one week left. 483 years passed and Jesus entered, but then there's this great pause. The great pause that we live in today is explained to us in Ephesians chapter two. It's called a mystery there, it's called the mystery of the church. This age of grace in which Jew and Gentile can come to Jesus Christ by faith and accept the salvation that he offers, for he died upon the cross for our sins. We live in this wonderful age of grace where God is giving the world the opportunity to repent of sin and turn to the Savior, believing that he died and that he rose again. And this morning you can receive him, but this passage is telling us that there's another false prince that's going to come, and he's going to confirm a covenant. It's going to be for one week. That's seven years. That's the tribulation. There's a prince that comes and he ratifies a covenant. So if you want to get really technical this morning, when will the tribulation start? You may immediately answer, it starts when the rapture happens. That's not correct. The tribulation doesn't start when the rapture happens. The tribulation starts when the Antichrist signs a covenant with the people of Israel for seven years. There can be a time between the rapture and that signing of that covenant. But this passage tells us about a seven-year period of time that begins when the prince who shall come will ratify a covenant. Note what it says in verse 27. And in the midst of that week, he will cause the sacrifices and the oblations to cease. Now, remembering that Daniel is the key to the book of the Revelation, Daniel chapter 9 sets forward a timeline having to do with the ministry of the Messiah. The Messiah is promised. Daniel's timeline makes it clear that the Messiah was cut off, one week remains, That final week that begins is inaugurated when the prince that shall come signs a covenant is going to be violated. In the midst of that week, three and a half years into it, the sacrifices will cease. Oh, that tells me something else. That tells me that there's going to be a temple that's going to be built again in Jerusalem. That tells me that there's going to be a temple there and so does the New Testament. The New Testament speaks about that temple. Now, folks, by now you might be saying, Pastor, I'm a little bit confused. Well, let me encourage you to just keep a couple things in mind. The 70 weeks or the 77s equal 490 years. Here is a continuum of prophecy, 490 years. Messiah was cut off in year 483, leaving seven years. That last seven years is inaugurated when a covenant is signed. We've seen a revelation of time. In that revelation of time, we're told that there's going to be a stopping of the sacrifices. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about a man of sin coming. He will sit in the temple, it says in 2 Thessalonians 2. That hasn't yet happened. Declaring himself that he is God, he will defile the temple. We've looked at this revelation of time That revelation of time is confirmed for us again and again in the book of the Revelation. The confirmation of that time. Take your Bibles. We're going to spend some time in the book of the Revelation this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, the 11th chapter. Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 11, in verse 2, you'll notice that we're reading about the holy city. Revelation chapter 11. Beginning in verse 2, the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. For it, God reveals to John, this court will be given unto the Gentiles and they shall, and the holy city rather, Jerusalem, the holy city, shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses and they will prophesy a thousand, two hundred and threescore days. Something interesting happening here. Forty-two months, that's exactly half of seven years. 1,260 days in verse 3, that also is exactly half of seven years. Now, remembering that Israel's calendar was a lunar calendar with 360 days, if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 5 talks about the Antichrist. And it says in verse 5, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And how long does he continue these conversations of blasphemy? Power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. Just like Daniel said, something is going to happen in the middle of that one week, in the middle of that seven years. It's so important that we know that, that John the Revelator says, You can count that time off as 42 months, or if you want to, you can designate it as 1,260 days. That's exactly half of that seven-year period. When we ask the question, Pastor, how do we know that the tribulation will be seven years in length? We go to Daniel chapter 9. Then we see the confirmation in the book of the Revelation. The prince, after all, that will come will ratify a covenant for seven years. There's going to be a temple on that holy mount. That temple is going to be defiled. 2 Thessalonians chapter two says in verse four, the antichrist, this one who's spoken of here as speaking blasphemies, he will exalt himself above all that's worshipped, so that he is God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Don't take it for granted that all the great religions of the world look to Jerusalem as the epicenter of their origins. The antichrist knows that he's going to set up shop in the temple. Take your Bibles and go back with me to the book of Revelation, the sixth chapter. We've looked at the duration of the tribulation. Let's see how the Word of God describes it. You're going to need to put on your roller skates here. We're going to move quickly. Scriptural sandals will not do for this consideration. Revelation chapter 6 through 19 provides a detailed description of the seven-year tribulation. It provides a description of many other things. But the book of the Revelation is a book that self outlines. In Revelation chapter one and verse 19, John speaks to the Savior, the resurrected Savior, and Jesus says to John, write. Write the things that are. That's Revelation chapter one. Write the things. He says, I'm sorry, the things that you have seen, Revelation chapter 1, that's the past. Write the things that are, that's chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches of the book of the Revelation, the things that are present. Then he says, and write those things which shall be, beginning in chapter 4 and 5, you have two chapters that provide a prelude, and then beginning in chapter 6, as the future is unraveled before us in the book of the Revelation, that future includes a great many details with regard to to the tribulation period. And those details are separated into three types of judgments. There are the seal judgments. Then there are the trumpet judgments. Then there are the bowl or the vial judgments. That's the outline of the book of the Revelation. We're gonna highlight just very quickly this morning those various judgments that tell us what it will be like to endure the tribulation. If you're ready, you have your Bible open to Revelation chapter six. We begin in verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw when the Lamb, that's Jesus, whos the only one worthy to open the seals, according to chapter 4 and 5. When the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see, and I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering, and to conquer. Notice that the one riding the white horse, white horse is always a symbol of victory. The white horse is being ridden by one who has a bow, but he has no arrows. Why? Because his victory is a symbolic victory. It symbolizes a political victory. There's no military conquering going on in verse 1, which reminds us, how did the tribulation open? There was a covenant, a peace treaty that the Antichrist wrote. He goes forth to conquer, but without bloodshed. And so we have opened the first seal that the Spirit of God has for us in Revelation 6. One and two, and a white horse is riding with a bow, but no arrows. Verse 3, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat on it to take peace from off the earth. that They should kill one another. There was given unto him a great sword. Red horse symbolizes warfare. And of course, peace is now taken away. Verse 5, the third seal is opened. When he opened the third seal, I heard a third beast say, "'Come and see,' and I beheld, lo, a black horse. He that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts saying, "'A measure of wheat for a penny, "'and three measures of barley for a penny. "'See that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. "'The black horse represents famine. "'A penny, that's a day's wages. "'You can work all day long in this dreadful time of famine "'for just enough meal to keep body and soul together.'" Now comes the fourth horse, Verse 6, and when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death. Hell followed him. Power was given unto them over a fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and hunger and death. With the beast of the earth, the pale horse represents death. And that death here comes by the sword or warfare, and that death comes by hunger or famine. And did you see the final reason for death In verse 8, I was long intrigued by that final reason, but I don't think I am anymore. It says, and by the beast of the earth. Most of us are not afraid of the beast of the earth. After all, we have armaments sufficient to wipe most of them out if they came to attack. But we are afraid of what other things the beast of the earth bring today. For we know from the green monkey in Africa came HIV, and we know that Ebola ties itself to bats we know that there's something called bird flu and swine flu, and we know that the viruses that come from the beast bring to us great fear. By the time the fourth seal is open, one-fourth of the people on the planet have died. There are eight billion people on the planet today. This passage tells us by the time the fourth seal is open, two billion of them have died. The fifth seal, chapter 6 and verse 9. It reveals the tribulation martyrs who are crying out for vengeance to the Lord. And then we read of the sixth seal in chapter 6 and verse 12. And behold, when he had opened the sixth seal, lo, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. The stars of the heaven fell upon the earth as fig. "'Trees, when they cast their untimely figs, "'when she was shaken with a mighty wind, "'and the heavens departed as a scroll "'when it's rolled together, "'and every mountain and island "'was moved out of its place, "'and the kings of the earth, "'and the great men and the rich men "'and the chief captains and the mighty men "'and every bondman and every free man "'hid themselves in the dens of the rocks "'and the mountains, "'saying to the mountains and rocks, "'Fall on us and hide us from the face of him "'that sits on the throne "'and from the wrath of the Lamb, "'for the great day of his wrath is come. "'Who will be able to stand?' "'Hey!' a quarter of the world's population already died, there was not this kind of emotional visceral response. But when this particular seal is open, there's a visceral response. When I read verses 12 to 17, I can't help think, but think of this earthquake, this earthquake of cosmic proportions that's shaking the very celestial beings. This earthquake sounds an awful lot like nuclear holocaust. In fact, you can't help but see it when you see John describing it with the only words that he could use as a scroll in the air when it's rolling away. You can almost envision the mushroom cloud. And the well-to-do and the powerful and the well-informed are hiding. Well, might they hide? They understand. These who have some background and some education, the well-to-do are hiding in the rocks. They're hiding in the caves. They're crying out, Where would you go if a nuclear bomb exploded? Did you know that today there are nine countries in the world that possess nuclear power? The U.S. and Russia and China, U.K., Pakistan, India, Israel, North Korea, and soon Iran. That will be number 10. It's not hard for us to envision these judgments. We move from the seals to the trumpet judgments when we come to chapter 8. In chapter 8, and verse 1, the seventh seal is opened. It introduces the seven trumpet judgments. Chapter 8 and verse 7, when the first trumpet sounds, we read of hail and fire mingled with blood cast upon the earth. A third part of the trees are burnt up and all the grass is burnt up. Chapter 8 and verse 8 tells about the second trumpet when it sounds. A great burning mountain is cast in the sea. A third part of the sea becomes as blood. A third part of the creatures of the sea have no life. And a third part of the ships that are in the oceans are destroyed. Verse 10, a third trumpet sounds. There falls a great star from heaven burning as it were a lamp. It falls upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters and many died. Verse 12 of chapter 8, the sounding of the third trumpet. The third trumpet sounds and the sun and the moon are dark and the third part of the day was dark. Chapter 9, as you move forward, tells of the horror of opening of the bottomless pit in the first 12 verses as that fourth trumpet is sound. And beasts, the Bible says, ascend out of that bottomless pit, and they torment those who don't have the mark of the Lamb, the mark of God, upon them. And the Bible says in verse 9, men seek death and find it not. They desire to die, They flee, and death flees from them. When you come to chapter 9 and verse 13, you're reading details about the sixth trumpet. Verse 15 says another third of the world's population dies. And in verse 18... Their death will come by fire and smoke and by brimstone, and by now, half the world's population has died, four billion out of the eight billion. The seventh trumpet sounds in chapter 11 and verse 15. It announces that the end is near, for the kingdom of this world are become the kingdom of our Lord, and He shall reign forever and forever. Folks, we've looked at these judgments as the seals and the trumpets are sounding and are broken. There's another whole series of judgments. That series of judgments is found in Revelation chapter 16. They're called the bowl or the vile judgments. In Revelation 16, verses 1 and 2, the first bowl is poured out, and a terrible boil punishes those who have the mark of the beast. In verse 3, the second bowl pollutes everything in the the sea, and all the oceans are completely dead. The fourth verse of chapter 16, the third bowl pollutes all the rivers and all the fresh water. As you come to that fourth bowl in verse 8, the fourth bowl makes the sun scorch men with a great heat and the scorched men continue to blaspheme God. In verse 10, the fifth bowl brings a global darkness. In verse 12, the sixth bowl dries up the Euphrates and now everything is ready for the kings of the east to come to a great battlefield. And that great battlefield is called Armageddon. And the final bold judgment is found in chapter 16, beginning in verse 17. And God begins to pelt the earth with great hailstones, 129 pounds each. And men continue to curse God. There are many dreadful details about the tribulation that we didn't cover this morning. But rapidly we walk through the judgments as they're opened and as they're revealed. We need to be asking a question this morning. So what's God's purpose in all this? Why? Why these terrible years of tribulation upon the earth? Which brings us to note the design of the tribulation. God doesn't do anything without purpose. God has a design for all this. Daniel chapter 4 says, our God rules in the kingdom of men. He has a design for what's happening today. So let's just quickly review three purposes that God has revealed to us with regard to the tribulation. The first purpose, and perhaps we're seeing a little bit of it today, is the punishment of Israel. Israel rejected the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 21, the Bible says, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth also shall disclose her blood and no more cover it, evildoers are going to be punished, Israel in specific, but all those evil doers in the world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, with regard to the persecuted believers, it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. There's a second great purpose for the tribulation. It is to preach salvation to the lost. If you're still in the book of the Revelation, come with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. The first eight verses of Revelation chapter 7 speak of God sealing 144,000 people from every one of the tribes of Israel. Then beginning in verse 9, look what we read. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. And a great multitude which no man can number of all the nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and under the Lamb. Now look at verse 13. And one of the elders answered and said unto me, What are these who are arrayed in these white robes? And whence came they? And I said to him, Sir, thou knowest. He said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation. Who? Well, verse 9 says, a great multitude that no one can number of all the kindreds and all the nations and all the tongues. There's a harvest of souls. God intends to bring a multitude to Jesus Christ as Savior during the terrible time of the tribulation. Now, someone here might be cynical enough to say, well, if that's the case, then I think I'll just wait, Pastor Phelps, and if everybody disappears this morning and I'm left behind, then I'll fall on my knees and trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Friend, you don't know that. But you do know this, the Bible says now is the accepted time of Today is the day of salvation. Today if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you can be saved. Who's to say that you'd ever be able to survive the tribulation? What's the purpose? Well, to punish evildoers and to preach salvation and to prepare Israel for her Messiah. You take your Bibles and go to the end of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. The twelfth chapter, next to the last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12 speaks in descriptive terms of the end times. And in Zechariah chapter 12, we begin our reading in verse 9. Zechariah chapter 12, look at verse 9. The Word of God says, "...and it will come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem." I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications, and they will look upon him that they pierced. And they will mourn for him as one that mourneth his own son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that's in bitterness for his firstborn. Now look at chapter 13 and verse 1. The Bible says, now in that day there'll be a fountain opened to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness, to wash them, to purify them. And in verse 9, Zechariah 13, we read, And I will bring the third part, speaking of Israel, through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and, they, and will try them as gold is tried. And they shall call upon my name, and I will hear them. And I will say, It's my people. And they will say, The Lord is my God. So we see the alignment of the nations today against Israel, we realize. It might not be too many years. It might not be too many months. It might not be too many days. After all, it wasn't too many years ago that no one could have imagined Israel being back in the land. And Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 didn't make much sense 100 years ago. But these chapters certainly make sense today. Since 1948, Israel has been a sovereign nation And when we ask the question, what will it take to bring Israel to accept Jesus as Messiah? Tribulation. There may be those who are still asking, well, who will participate in this tribulation, Pastor Phelps? For that, we discuss just briefly the deliverance from the tribulation. Those who know Jesus Christ as Savior need not fear the things that we've considered this morning. How do you know? First, Remember where we began this morning? What was the purpose of the tribulation? Those 490 years that were revealed in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. You're not going to find the church there. The purpose for the tribulation is to cleanse Israel from sin and ultimately, Daniel 9 says, to anoint the Most High so that Messiah will be received. Remember God's promise. In tribulational terms, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, there's coming a day which will fall upon them. We need not write unto you, brethren, for that day shall not come upon you, but it comes upon them as upon a thief in the night when they shall say, peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them. But the Chapter 5 and verse 9 gives the wonderful assurance that we're not... Reserved under wrath, the Bible says, we're not appointed under wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the midst of that awful temporal judgment that's described as the tribulation, there's this wonderful glowing promise. The church is not preserved, appointed to that wrath. And we remember that God's punishment for sin was poured out completely upon Jesus Christ, our Savior, hallelujah. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3 says you're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. The believer never needs to go through the time of tribulation. Why? Because that would be double jeopardy. Christ, hallelujah, died for our sins. A new teacher came into the old country schoolroom, stood before the students, introducing himself. He knew that the rules needed to be put in place, and so he suggested, you give me the rules and I'll write them out. I'll write them out he turned to the chalkboard and as they begin to cry out the rules no lying he wrote no lying no stealing no stealing no hitting no hitting he wrote out the rules and he said okay now boys and girls there needs to be a punishment for every rule what should the punishment be let's say for stealing the boys and girls said well the person that steals ought to get spanked that's a long time ago Well, sure enough, the day came that a big boy brought his lunch to school. When he opened his lunch that day, there was no sandwich there. Someone had stolen his sandwich. They began their investigation. They found the smallest child in the class, a weak little skinny little boy who lived in poverty, had stolen that big boy's sandwich. When they found it out, they brought the boy forward and the teacher reminded the class, what's the punishment for someone who steals? And they all said, you said it would be a spanking. As the story goes, the big boy whose lunch had been stolen stood up and he said, Teacher, it says spanking, but it doesn't say who will be spanked. I'd like to volunteer to be spanked for that little boy. The teacher said, you know, you're right. Justice requires punishment, but you can take his spanking. Friends, the justice of God, a thrice holy God, demands punishment. The tribulation is part of that. But praise the Lord, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped out of heaven. He took our sins all the way to the cross. He endured our punishment. And if today you'll come to him by faith, you need not fear the tribulation. You need not fear the wrath to come. Jesus Christ is the one who solves the tribulational piece of the prophetic puzzle. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. A church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindie.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.